Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. If you haven't been with us uh, for some time, uh, uh, you came at a good week. We're starting a new series called The Amazing uh, Change. And uh, we're going to be looking for the next eight weeks at uh, Acts chapter 9, which is uh, the narrative of uh, Paul, but before we even get there, of Saul of Tarsus's um, conversion experience. We're going to learn about a man who uh, was completely changed by the power and the person of Jesus Christ. And as we focus in on that, I hope and I pray that as we uh, look at each of the different things that we see in Saul's life as he approaches and meets Jesus for the very first time, uh, that there would be change going on in our lives. Whether we are uh, like Saul, walking away from God, doing everything that's uh, against God, or whether we have come uh, to a point in our lives where we've trusted Christ as our Savior and haven't seen the kind of change that Saul did in his pursuit of God uh, after that great experience on that road uh, to Damascus. So let's look to Acts 9 uh, this morning. I'm just going to read the first uh, opening verses of the text. I'd ask that you would stand as we read God's Word together, uh, and then we'll uh, pray a blessing over our time in His Word. This is what uh, Acts 9 says. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him uh, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and, he, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told uh, what you must do. Let's pray. Father God, we come uh, to a new series, uh, to a new place. Lord, we've just finished a book. Uh, the book of Malachi, where you, uh, time after time, tell your people it's time to change. It's time to give up uh, the evil ways. It's time to uh, turn uh, back to me. And Lord, what a fitting way to move on from that series, uh, to look at one of the greatest changes you've uh, ever shown us in the person of Saul who would become the Apostle Paul. The changes that were made were not uh, just changes that he did of reforming himself, but they were true and spiritual and supernatural changes that can only come from God. And Lord, like Saul, we uh, come into this place sinners. Uh, Lord, we come in and there's change that's needed within us. Through your word, just as you did in the Malachi uh, text, you, you tell us time and time again, it's not about us, it's about you. That we are to serve you, we are to honor you, we are to respect you, uh, we are to bring glory to your name. And Lord, so many times we find ourselves like the world, uh, not doing those things that you've called us to, but following uh, the ways of this world, gratifying our sinful natures and uh, living contrary to uh, the spirit that lives inside of us. So, Lord, we pray that during this series, uh, Lord, you would change us, that you would uh, make us different, 
Lord, that uh, you would begin to uh, deal with the imperfections in our lives, the sins that we pursue, that you would get that all out of our way. And that for once and for all in our lives that we would turn to you in a way uh, that supernaturally changes the very essence of who we are. Lord, you're all about change and we're so thankful for that. You didn't leave us uh, to our own uh, sin, but just as we've talked about, as we've come around the table this morning, uh, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, that change could become a reality and that we could be a part of this miracle of life change that we see in Acts 9. So Lord, open our hearts and our minds that we may bring glory to your name as a result of what we do in response to this great text. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. When I put this series together, I'll tell you, this series uh, is about three years old. Uh, I've wanted to preach this series, but it seemed that every time I was about to do it, something would, would come up, another series would come to mind, and, and uh, I would put it on the shelf and say, it's for another, it's for another day, and, and uh, we'll do it another time. And little did I know that uh, when I uh, made the decision at the beginning of this year to preach this in the early fall that the word change would have such meaning. When I talk about the amazing change, it wouldn't be hard for me to be standing before a a political rally to talk about this word change. Six letters to this word. This word has great power. As we see here in America, this is the buzz word uh, in our day. Amidst this presidential race, change seems to be the name of the game. It seemed to be uh, one uh, party's uh, platform, and and suddenly now both parties seem to have this as their idea. Change. It's time for change. Now, what would bring about this this desire for change? The reason that uh, these parties are running after this word change is because uh, they know that there seems to be uh, a spirit of um, disappointment in where we've been. Now, I don't want to get into the the political things, but I'm I'm speaking just things that are uh, apparent to us as Americans. People aren't happy, as happy as they were uh, some years ago about their lives, about the economy, about where we're at as a country. And so what do politicians say? Let's change it. Let's go a different direction. Let's move in a different way. So the question isn't whether or not the presidential campaign is going to bring change or not. Both candidates have said, yes, we'll be bringing change. But the question that they want you to answer uh, on that Tuesday in November is, who is most trusted to bring forth that change? Who's the one that we can rely on to make sure that the change that they speak about and the hope that they have for America will become a reality? And just like in the presidential race, we find ourselves as people asking that question every day because we find ourselves unhappy so many times with where we've been. We find ourselves struggling uh, through the days of life, trying to uh, work from one day to another, hoping that this existence will turn into something of significance. And so we seem to cry out for change. But the world tells us that change comes uh, by redoing your hair. 
That the change that you're looking for means go get some new clothes and dress for the kind of change uh, that you're looking for. Maybe you need change because you've been hanging around the wrong people, so it's time to change your friendships and your acquaintances and to pursue other people. Because if you change your friends, then it might change your outlook on life. We change churches. We change spouses. We change because we seem to be dissatisfied with the status quo. It seems even as people, we find ourselves uh, wanting to change our very uh, look at what our life is all about. There's a rock band called uh, Sister Hazel. And one of the songs that they sing about speaks about change. And in the song, it says, if you want to be somebody else, if you're tired of fighting battles with yourself, if you want to be someone else, then change your mind. The world tells us, hey, if you don't like where you're at, then just change. Flip your life over. Do whatever you have to to make yourself different. But sadly, as we do that, as we seem to find, uh, try to find uh, hope and joy amidst uh, changes in our life, after we get our hair cut done thinking that's going to change us, We get done, we get out of the barber's seat or the hair salon, we walk out and we don't feel any different. Our circumstances haven't changed. Maybe we've bought a new house thinking that would renew our life, that would bring hope and and the change that we're looking for. And we get in there and all we have is a bigger mortgage and more troubles. Maybe we thought that uh, going to a different church or maybe even trading in our spouse and finding another, that would change who we are. See, the world tells us, uh, look at everything else. Look at all the things that you're struggling with and say, you know what, change that. As if uh, we have a canvas before us and, and the things we don't like, we erase them and say, well, I don't like that on my canvas of life. I'll get rid of it and I'll start new. But you know what? As we look at Scripture, the Bible makes it clear that God uh, wants some changing to happen too. But it's not about everybody else. It's not about the circumstances around us. But God wants you and I to change. Even though God is unchanging, we learn that in the book of Malachi, in his attributes and his character, God is all about change. He is the candidate for change. He wants change in the lives of people all around the world. Not only does God want change, but hear me this morning, God demands change. The difference between the individual who spends eternity in hell and the individual who spends eternity in heaven is the word, has that individual been changed by Jesus? That's the question. And so as we look at what the world tells us and as politicians and pundits try to tell us that change is coming, let me tell you that the only person who can change everything in our lives is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. Acts 9 tells us about a man who tried to live and tried to uh, live his life, no other words for it, live his life uh, in a way uh, that would seemingly uh, bring him to the best spot in life. He did all that he tried, this man named Saul. He wanted to make sure that he had a good life. He wanted to make sure that things were going well. And, and the things he didn't like, he would try to change around him. He would go to great lengths to change them. And yet God says, Saul, it's not the world that needs to change. It's you. But why do we need to change, God? 
What makes us uh, so, what, what makes you so eager, God, for us to change? I want you to turn in your Bibles for a moment uh, to the book of Romans. To the book of Romans, chapter 3. It was spoken about for a moment in our communion time. Romans chapter 3. You see, when uh, God created man in the garden, he said it was very good. God was very excited about what he had created. He was excited about the relationship that he would have uh, with the man and the woman in the garden. But from that moment of being very good to the fall in the garden, things went haywire. What God demanded of us Uh, Now he demanded a relationship in the beginning. Now he demanded something more because after Adam and Eve fell, there was no relationship to be had. But now there was trouble. And as a result of that trouble, sin entered into the world. And notice the indictment that uh, God gives uh, of us in our humanity. Uh, Starting in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. We've become altogether uh, uh, worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Our tongues are open graves. Our our, uh, tongues practice deceits. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. And of course, the great verse that we know from verse 23 of that same chapter, he goes on to say, There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why does God want change so much? He wants change because we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're dead. We've got no hope for tomorrow without the blood of Jesus Christ being placed on our lives. But who comes up with that change? Who makes that change a reality? Uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 13, 23 uh, tells us it can't happen on our own. Listen to what uh, Jeremiah uh, is told by the Lord. Uh, Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard change its spots? Well, those answers are no. I can't change my skin if I wanted to. A leopard that has spots can't do anything in its life to to change that fact. It can try to cover it up, but it can't change that. Now listen to what is said. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The reason why God is all about change is because even though uh, we're evil and we find ourselves in sin, we think as humanity that we can fix it. We think that we can just kind of tidy up the place and and maybe buy a, a couple new things on the exterior just to kind of clean things up. But the problem is we are flawed in our standing before God. We are sinful. He is holy. And as a result of that, God says change must happen. And we see that in Acts 9. But not only does God want to change us, he doesn't want to just remodel us. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that God wants to make us a new uh, creation. He wants to change us in such an incredible way, not in just the way of the exteriors, but change us from the inside and out. So we get to Acts 9, and we are introduced to a man named Saul. Saul was an incredible man, a man who found himself standing before Jesus Christ. And in that moment, his life would never 
ever be the same because change had come his way. And we need to understand some things about Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. We know about Pharisees. Pharisees were the ones that Jesus always found himself getting into fights with, found himself debating with. Why? Because Pharisees were really well known for being really clean and really uh, um, put together on the outside, uh, but many times finding themselves rotten on the end. It's amazing. Jesus, in one of his uh, talks with the Pharisees, called them a, a set of whitewashed tombs. Oh, you look pretty on the outside, he said, but you're, you're just a bunch of sack of dead bones on the inside. There's no life there. And the Pharisees missed it. And here we have this man named Saul, a Pharisee, who probably lived his life trying to make sure that that flawed standing that he had heard about by the prophets, that he made sure the outside looked so unflawed, unblemished, that people would never know that deep down inside he was messed up. So as we observe Saul's life in Christ, we see a life that is filled with all kinds of approaches to try to fix it. See, our flawed standing, we have a standing that's so flawed that first of all, write this in your outlines, that our standing is so flawed that no resume, no resume can fix it. Here's this man, Saul. And Saul knows that he has a flaw in his life. He would have known it from the prophets. And what do we see? We see Saul's life as a life of accomplishments and achievements. We see Saul living a life that would put him high on any management list in a Fortune 500 company. It would have put him with the who's who's and the what's of society. In fact, later in his life, we see that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that if anybody has confidence, should have confidence in what they've done in the flesh, he says, I should above everyone else. I've got it put together. If it's all about the externals, if it's all about the things that we do, then I tell you what, I deserve the award. I'm the one. I've, I've done it. You should see how put together I am. And I want to very quickly, there's a lot of spaces there, but I want to quickly look at Saul's resume and find out how he tried to accomplish this flawed standing, how to fix it. And this is where he put his confidence. First of all, he tried to fix it uh, with his heritage. Here's Saul's resume, this great resume, and yet it's lacking, and it's lacking amidst his heritage. In Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 5, he speaks about this confidence that he has that he's He's, he's the cream of the crop. He's the best of the best. And he says this in Philippians 3. If anyone thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Let's stop there for a moment. Well, what is he saying? He says, first of all, I've been circumcised. I've been circumcised. What that means is, man, I got great parents. They did what God told them to. I, I had it done on the eighth day. That, that was an important thing. That's exactly what the law of Moses told them to do. And his parents did that. He's saying, man, I come from good stock. But then he says, I I'm also an Israelite. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm a chosen, a child of God. Man, you should be applauding. Look at me. I'm an Israelite. Do you know who we are? We serve Yahweh. We serve Jehovah God. He's done great things for us. I'm one of them. But he goes on. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, well what does that mean, Saul? 
What it means is, is my tribe was known uh, in, in the days of uh, Jacob and, and his children that I would be one who would be uh, given grace. Remember the story of Joseph in the Bible? Remember Benjamin comes, Joseph is in Egypt. And we see that, uh, of course, uh, Joseph has this love for his brother and his brother, the brothers come to get food in Egypt, but Benjamin doesn't come because his father doesn't want him to leave because he's afraid that uh, if he leaves, he may lose another son because he's, he, knew, he had thought at that point that he had lost Joseph. And when Benjamin comes, Joseph pours out his love and grace upon Benjamin. When all the brothers are given food in Joseph's courts, Benjamin is given five times the amount of food. He's poured out in grace and love. And so what Saul is saying is, remember, I'm from that I'm from that tribe, a son whose father loved him and rejoiced in in having him as a son. He says he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. Simply put, um, I have it. My heritage is, is something I can hold on to. But notice what else he talks about, his hometown. Not only does he stick with being an Israelite, but he says, hey, I come from a good place as well. Acts 21 uh, tells us, if you'd like to turn there, I'll just quickly uh, look at it. Acts 21, 39, Paul is talking later in his life and he's speaking uh, to a crowd. It says in verse 37, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt that led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in the province of Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Let's stop there for a moment. Saul says he's from Tarsus. Well, where's Tarsus at? Tarsus uh, was a place that was very well known. Tarsus was no backwoods community. It wasn't a bump in the road. It wasn't one of those communities that you, you if you drove through with, while you blinked, you missed it. Tarsus was a place that was very well known. Well, where, where was Tarsus at? Well, it was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It found itself on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. It lives presently in, in, the, in the nation of Turkey, in Asia Minor. It was a beautiful city. It had the Mediterranean on one side. It had the Taurus Mountains uh, on the north side. It was a place that know, was known for uh, its commodities, for its commercial uh, center. It was also known as a place of great culture. Why? Because it had a road that uh, would take you from Rome down to Jerusalem, even to the Orient. It was a, a central part of the community that we knew as the ancient world. And Saul says, that's where I'm from. It's no ordinary city. It had strategic locations. And as a result of that, the Bible says uh, that it, that, uh, I'm sorry, not the Bible, Chuck Swindoll, let me rephrase that. Chuck Swindoll says, some will say Chuck Swindoll speaks like the Bible, but that the cream of this rich cultural and commercial diversity would fill Saul's cup as he grew up in this amazing city. He says, hey, my heritage is great. I've got a great hometown. You should see our football team. It's wonderful. And he says, but notice, I had a great home life as well. Not only did he have a great heritage, great hometown, but we know from both Jewish history and scripture that his home life was good. 
We know from uh, the Bible that it says that not only was he a Pharisee, but his mom and dad were a part of the, of the sect known as the Pharisees. As we study Jewish history, we learn a couple other things. Number one, we learn that uh, uh, in his home life that his father uh, was a tent maker, that he was a prominent tent maker in Tarsus. We also know that uh, as a result of that uh, time of being a tent maker, that he would one day become a tent maker. What an odd thing to do, to follow in your father's footsteps. Who would think to take over the family business? Some of you understand what I'm talking about. And I'm a glutton for punishment. My dad started out as a caterer. I become a caterer. My dad then goes and, be, and becomes a pastor. And what do I do? Dad, you become a pastor. I'll be a pastor. All right. What are you going to do next? I hope he doesn't do that. I don't got any more time in my life. But his dad is a, a tent maker. He's a part of the Pharisee group. We know from Jewish history that uh, it seems that uh, Paul lost his mom at a young age. Historians say about nine years of age, uh, uh, Paul lost his mom. As a result of, of that, uh, he would be taught in the best schools around. By the age of 13, he would know Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. He would have memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He would have known all the Psalms. And he would have known uh, with a uh, very quick mind the history of the prophets. And he would have done this again all by the age of 13. That's what happens when you don't have video games and television. You're able to do all that. This guy was smart. This guy was a part of a great home life. But notice what else we see. He had a great headmaster. He had a great headmaster. His teacher, Acts 22, tells us in verse 13, he says, uh, when again speaking uh, in, uh, let's see here, 20, 22, 13, 22, 1 through 3. And continuing to speak uh, to them, they're all silent. And he says to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but, uh, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, uh, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our forefathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Well, let's stop there. He says, hey, do you know my teacher? My teacher, Gamma, I like to call him. Good old Gamma. He was his teacher. Who was he? He was a great rabbi. Uh, this rabbi was well-known all throughout Israel. He was like Nicodemus. He was the people's teacher. He had an incredible uh, grandfather named Hillel, one of the most known and historic of all rabbis. This, this teacher was amazing. And Paul says, I sat under him. He was my teacher. Not only did I have a great heritage and do I come from a great town and, and I have great mom and dad who taught me the ways of the Lord, but I also had a great teacher. But notice the phrase there in the text. It says he was taught under Gamaliel. What does that mean? In our uh, English understanding, we would say, well, that's no different than you sitting under my teaching right now, that I sit under Tim's teaching. But that's not what the Greek phrase means under there. What it literally means in, in the Greek culture, when you were taught under somebody, it would give significance to something. What Saul or what Paul was saying at the time, and I just want to remind everybody, of course, the same person I'm talking about is Saul before his conversion with Christ and Paul. You're going to hear me use those terms interchangeably uh, during this series. But what Paul is saying about his early life was 
Not only that he was a student, but he said, I was the prize student. You see, what would happen is, is if there was a teacher, the best way to do this, I'll do this with the woods here. They're the closest group. What would happen is, is as a Greek teacher, or a Greek teacher, as a Jewish rabbi, I'm getting my nationalities wrong, as a Jewish rabbi, the rabbi would line his students up. And where he would stand would show significance of who were the cream of the crop. And in this, I know, Allison's the cream of the crop. Sorry. You know where I was sitting. What Paul is saying is he's saying, I was the prize student. I was at the head of my class. I was the valedictorian. I had it going on for me. Man, this guy had a great resume. Look at what else it talks about. It talks about him being one who worked hard. In Acts 22, 3, he says, I was as zealous as you are for God. In Philippians 3, 4, it says in his zealousness, uh, he went out and persecuted the church. This guy was a hard worker. He knew what job was before him. He knew what he had to accomplish. And as a result of that, he worked as hard as he could. Saul and Paul, if you will, never was called lazy. He was always working to accomplish what was before him. What a resume. What an amazing thing. We would have wanted to know this guy. This guy was an amazing guy. And you know what he said? I can put confidence in these things. Well, what are we to learn from that? You know what we do? We put our confidence in our resumes, don't we? We say, look at, look at my life. Look at the accomplishments that I've made. I was ranked such and such in my class. What a student I was. I got all these scholarships to college. On the day of graduation, uh, after uh, they had gone through all the honors and they were bringing up the salutatorian and the valedictorian, uh, I hadn't been mentioned during those times as a high school senior. And of course, I always had to be mentioned. There always had to be some commentary by me. And so right when uh, the valedictorian was to give up his speech and, and they were asking all the honor students to stand up and get a hand, they got their hand and they stood up and they, were thank or they thanked everybody for that. And then what does Tim do? In the front row of the graduating class, he stands up and he yells out, well, how about a hand for those that just got by? <laughs> My mom wept. <laughs> but that's what we do, isn't it? Look at the honors. Look at all that we've accomplished. And we say, well, look at my bank account. Look at my house. Look at my kids. We do that a lot, don't we? Our kids mess up and we say, ah, you know, I'm not the great parent. I'm not what I am. But boy, when they're doing well, look at my kids. What a great parent I am. We look at all these things. We say, look at the ministry I'm a part of. Just put them all down. Write them all down. And maybe they're not the things that you would write down were the same as Paul was. But you know what? We seem to do that. And we seem to say, God, look, take a look at what we're doing. But notice what's wrong with this kind of thinking. Nowhere in the Bible uh, does uh, God ever speak about anything of these things saying, man, that's Saul. We got to get him on our team. He's really smart. He's really good at talking. He's really good. We need him on our team. We can't do things without us. But what do we see? The first thing we see God write about is not this flowing uh, article about how great Saul is. But turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts chapter uh, 7 for a moment. You would think that this great man with this great resume, man, he, he's something. Why does he need to change? Because God saw something different in him, something that needed to be dealt with. Acts chapter 7, 
we see the speaking of Stephen, an incredible man full of the Spirit. And it says that after he's preached this incredible message, verse 54 says, when they heard this, they were furious. The crowd, they didn't like what they heard. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, their ears yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. And notice what it says. And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. This guy with this great resume, God says, you know what I see? I don't see your achievements. I don't see all the great things that you've done. I don't see your trophy case or your highlight reel. What did God see in Saul? His hatred. His hatred. Saul was a murderer. Saul allowed a man who was innocent to be stoned to death. And the Bible says he gave his hearty approval. He was happy with it. Let me tell you something. Your achievements mean nothing when God looks at you because God sees sin. God is greater than anything we've ever been a part of. And, uh, and as a result of that, he doesn't need our achievements. God isn't looking down at heaven uh, from heaven today and saying, wow, Tim, great message. Wow, you really wowed him, man. I, I need more of you out there. He's not saying that. He's saying, Tim, fix your life so you can be even more effective for the gospel. So if Paul can't, or Saul can't fix it with his resume, what did Saul do? Notice what happens next. He, he moved to something else. And what we learn from that is that there's no amount of religious fervor uh, that can change it. There's no fervor that can change it. Saul says, all right, if, if I can't fix it with my resume, what I'll do is I'll make my religion a big part of my life. I'll make sure that that, that becomes it. If I, get, if I want to get right with God, if I want to fix my standing before God, I'll get on his team. And what I'll do is I'll do what I think he wants me to do. Notice uh, what the text says. We see that he has incredible fervor. Now, now notice this fervor consumed every desire that he had. Uh, look at uh, Acts 9 again. Acts 9, chapter 1 says, Meanwhile, after all this has transpired, all this persecution that has gone on uh, by the uh, man Saul, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That phrase, breathing out, literally in the Greek is, is breathing in. It means to inhale, not exhale. And the reason why he talks about breathing out murderous threats is it's this idea uh, that uh, what is from the inside is coming out. Saul is, is uh, uh, if you will, uh, rotten to the core. And the Bible says out of the overflow of the, ho- uh, overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what's going on. He's breathing out murderous threats. Literally what it means is that it is the air that he breathes. He's inhaling and exhaling these murderous things. It consumes who he is. He wants to be the best that he can be at being a Pharisee. And what does he want to do? We see it in the next thing. He he lives a life that is completely focused in on chasing every uh, disciple that he can find. He's led because of this fervor to chase after them. Notice what the text says in verse uh, chapter 9. 
while breathing out these murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he goes to the high priest and he asks him for letters to the synagogues. What he's asking for is permission. Let me have permission to give these Christians a beating. Just write it down that you say it's okay and I'll head to Damascus and I'll go beat those Christians. Now notice what it says. He says, so that if he found any there in Damascus, Christians who belong to the way, that was the first title that Christians had in the first century, the way, probably because of John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But notice what it says, whether men or women. In the three narratives that are spoken about Saul's conversion, two of them speak about that he pursued men and women. Commentaries think this is important. Because usually what would happen when there was persecution that would go on or there was a cleaning, religious cleansing of a house, they would usually just pursue the man. Why? Because he was the head of the house. And the family, the wife and the children were to do what the father did. So if the father was messing up, he was the one that was to be blamed. And so they would come in, these Pharisees, and they would deal harshly with the man, but not the, not the woman. Saul said, it's not good enough. I'm going to go after the women as well. It didn't just happen in Jerusalem. He was so focused on it. His fervor was so uh, much for the killing of Christianity uh, that he went to even Damascus. He headed north into Syria from Jerusalem uh, so he could take care of the disciples there and, and deal with them and then bring them back to Jerusalem. He wanted to cleanse the nation of sin. So he chased every disciple. He thought he was doing right. Uh, notice what uh, uh, the text says in uh, Acts 21. Uh, let's see here. Acts 21, verses 1 through 3. Why did he do it? Because he was convinced that he needed to destroy Christianity. Go to... Uh, hold on one second. I've got the wrong passage in here. Uh, go to Acts 22, verses 1 through 3. Brothers and, and their fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became quiet. He says, well, this is where I'm from. I'm from Tarsus of Sicilia. I've been brought up in this amazing city. I've been taught by a great teacher, it says. But he says, I persecuted, in verse 4, the, the followers of the way to their death, arresting them and throwing them into prison. He did this, why? He did this because he thought that that was what God wanted him to do. He says, I did all these things because that's what I wanted. That's what I thought God wanted. You know, when we try to serve God out of the wrong motives, when we try to serve God uh, in trying to uh, appease God and say, you know what, I'm going to fix my life by going and just serving the Lord and doing all that I can and maybe he'll be happy with me. Maybe he'll look down at heaven from heaven and say, wow, Tim, you're really serving me. And so, you know what, I'll look after you. I'll take care of you and uh, we'll take care of all those things we call your sins. Uh, you're a good worker. You know, that's what we used to do with my dad when, when my dad needed help at work. Uh, we would try to appease our dad uh, by saying, yeah, dad, I'll go and work with you. But, but remember that I've worked for you so, uh, so that when I need something or when I get into trouble, you remember I bailed you out. I helped you. That's not how God works. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us to bail him out. And yeah, that's what Paul's trying to do. He figured that he was one of these great prophets who would come in and, and would uh, declare, you know what, hey, look at what I've done. In Acts 26, verses uh, 9 through 11, he announces this uh, to uh, King Agrippa. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. He was driven to destroy Christianity. Amidst all the great things he had done, he had one flaw. He hated Jesus. Let me tell you something this morning. If you're not for Jesus, you're against him. And I don't care what you have in your life, that you think you're all that in a bag of chips. You are nothing if you are not following Jesus. Without Jesus, you got nothing going for you. That's what grace is all about. We're a bunch of jerks. We're a bunch of uh, nincompoops that can do nothing. And the Bible says we are God-haters. You know what God says? I don't want haters in heaven with me. And he says he'll judge the haters of those who hate his son. He'll judge them. And as a result of that, we don't find ourselves being blessed by God, but being cursed by God. So how do we fix it? What's the solution? If our resume won't fix it, if our religious fervor won't change it, We see only a relationship founded in Christ can. We'll get more into this next week, but very quickly we see a couple things. Number one, he's heading out to Damascus. He's going to destroy uh, the church there, bring all the Christians back from Damascus, back to Jerusalem so they can be put in prison. And what happens? Look at Acts 9 again for a moment. Acts 9, it says, On his way to Damascus, something happens. It says, as he neared Damascus in verse 3 on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. A couple things we need to understand about this relationship. This relationship transforms. This is the only relationship that can change us. And notice a couple things about uh, this encounter with Jesus. Number one, it begins at a different place for each person. It happens at a different place. It says that Saul was nearing Damascus. Now, does that mean we all got to get into uh, planes and head over to Syria to find that road to Damascus and find that exact place where Jesus met Saul? No. Now, there are other religions in this world that speak of pilgrimages and and, uh, trips to holy places. But the great thing about Jesus is, is he meets people at different places. He meets them at different places. As you look at the study of Scripture, you see that God encounters people in different places, but all of them encounter the same God. Some find it on the road to sin, while others find it in a church. For the Ethiopian uh, that was led to the Lord by Philip, he was led to the Lord on the side of a road. For the Philippian jailer, he met Jesus at work. For Cornelius, it was in his bedroom when he was sleeping because he saw a vision. We don't always have the same encounter. If we were to go around and talk about where you met Jesus, it would be a a million different places, or at least uh, 400 and some different places. But it's the same Jesus who encounters us. The second thing we see is that it's initiated at a certain point in time. It says suddenly in verse 3. Suddenly. It happened in a moment. Some may sit here and say, well, Tim, I I don't remember the time that... uh, I asked Jesus into my heart. I don't. I remember the time where I gave my life over uh, to Jesus. Well, what do you mean by this? It had initiated at a certain point. The reason why I bring this up is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he talks about the spiritual birth uh, being born again. And being born again uh, is just like the physical birth. Uh, birth isn't a process. Either you're born or you're not. 
There's no in-between. Either you're in your mother's womb or, or you're out. And I would say the same thing for the spiritual conversion. Now, that doesn't mean, please hear me, that doesn't mean that the, the spiritual life can't be a process where God continues to illuminate and open our eyes. But there needs to be a moment in time where we can look back and we can say, at this moment, I said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Yes, Jesus, I'll do it. I'll do what you say. All that you've declared before me, I'll do it. He came face to face in a moment in time with Jesus. Remember, it centers on a person. Saul didn't see a ghost. He didn't see an angel. He didn't see a prophet. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. And things we need to remember, that the change that Saul had wasn't because he read a motivational book. It wasn't because he started reading things from Oprah's uh, book club. He did it because he was changed by a person named Jesus. No prophet, no pastor, no saint, no event, not even the Mary, the mother of Jesus, can change lives. Only Jesus can. Who can change the Ethiopian skin? Who can change the leopard spots? Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can do it. Look at what else takes place. We'll read about this more next week, but it evokes a powerful response. In Acts 22.10, Jesus identifies himself in the story that Saul shares. And Saul says, what do you want of me? When you meet Jesus face to face, there has to be a question that has to be asked. And it's not asked by Jesus. It's asked by us. We come face to face with Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want of us? Tell me what I need to do. We must submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ when we meet him on that road. We'll learn about that next week. But I want to finish up with three very quick things as we close out our time here. What are we to do with this text? What are we to do with this opening thought? There are three things I want you to ponder this morning. First of all, no matter your posturing, remember we're all broken. You know what? Saul looked great on the outside, like many of us do today. Look at us. We're on our Sunday best. We're looking good. Nobody knows about the sins that we're falling into uh, the rest of the week. Nobody knows what's going on the inside. We've put such together such a good outside. We look like Joe Christian. Look at what I do. Look how big my Bible is. Look at all the writings in my Bible. Man, I really study. Look at all the notes that Tim gives. I have them filled up. Look, look how great I am. And we start building this resume. And little do we know that during the week, we're struggling with issues like pornography, uh, lust. We're dealing with issues like lying and cheating. Uh, we're dealing with uh, issues of unfaithfulness to God. We find ourselves uh, talking bad about people behind their backs. We find ourselves having murderous thoughts against people that we hate. And we sit there and we think all that during the week. And yet we come in and we put on a nice shell. And we never talk about the issues that are really facing us. This church will never be what God wants it to be until we get honest and stop making ourselves look better than we really are. Saul looked great on the outside, my friends, but he was rotten to the core. We need to learn that. The writer of the, book, of the song Amazing Grace says that the Amazing Grace was so amazing because it saves a wretch like me. Are you a wretch this morning? If you start building a resume, you're not thinking yourself as a wretch. You're thinking, so, hey, i got something to offer to God. You've got nothing to give to God. But notice the second thing. No matter your past, we are never beyond hope. Saul had murdered. 
Saul had tried to destroy the church. But did God give up on him? No. Did God say he was unsavable? No. Let me tell you something. No matter what you've done, no matter what your uh, life involves, if it involves issues of uh, a sexual sin, God can cover that. If it involves an abortion in the past, God can cover that. If it involves lying and cheating, God can cover that. If it's an issue of divorce, God can cover that. If you've murdered or hurt somebody, God can cover that. If it's a whole bunch of small things in your life that maybe you don't have the big ones that get you put in prison or anything like that, God can cover even yours, all of them. It's not beyond hope. You're never beyond hope. That's the great thing about this amazing change. And finally... No matter our problems, Christ allows for new beginnings. Saul had a lot of problems. Why would God want him to be a part of his, his, uh, his church, a part of his family? Saul brought baggage. He was an enemy of God's. Why would Saul want to bring him? And yet God doesn't say, well, you got too many problems. Fix your problems before I come. What God does, he says, don't worry about fixing the problems because I'm going to start with you fresh. I'm going to deal with you as a new creation. And what does he do with Saul? He changes him in a moment. And we're going to look at that next week, but let's stop here and let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are in awe of your change, the change that you've done. Oh, Father, uh, we pray for that this morning. We pray that we would be changed. The Bible says that one day we will stand before you in heaven and we will be changed. It'll happen in a moment's notice, in a blink of an eye, we will uh, stand before you changed. But Lord, we know that uh, in the process of making you, uh, making us more like your son, uh, that change is happening now. Father, I pray that that would become a reality in our lives, that we too would not uh, find ourselves like Saul, uh, building our case of how good we are based on what we've done or the kind of excitement or fervor we have for uh, your business, but that it would be because we've come face to face with Jesus. Lord, let us come face to face with your son. Let us look into him that we would learn and that we would know first and foremost that you are our all in all, that you're everything that we have and everything that we need so that we will give you glory and honor and praise because you have saved us and you have made us new even though we were blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one. You brought us into your family. To you be the glory. Amen.